Barry Jenkins' uh, 2016 film, Moonlight, is a really remarkable achievement. Um, it, in many ways, we should have spent a week or maybe even two weeks walking through the film. I think it has a level of complexity to it at the level of, of staging, the role of silence, the role of color, the role of saturation, um, also genre questions about how it sort of moves between fantasy and you know, sort of social realism in that way echoing in the social realism dimension uh, both the killer of sheep and also native son uh, and this this these uh, sort of dreamscape fantasy flight elements um, are so fascinating to me so as a film I, I think there's just so much to be said about it but I, what I want to talk about here in processing the, the film and our conversation about it in class really has to do with how I understand it in relation to previous material. In particular, the two short stories and cinematic uh, rendering of Richard Wright's novel um, uh, Native Son and the two, two short stories of his. One of the things I wanted us to draw out of those two short stories was Wright's interrogation. And we can be very critical of it. We can see it as diagnostic or a portrait or normative, right? Setting out how we ought to think about uh, black masculinity. But however we choose to reckon with his depictions of black masculinity and its crisis, um, it really frames for me a way of seeing the revolutionary uh, moment in Moonlight, right? That is the moment that is Moonlight and what Moonlight has to say and how it's trying to say something both very different but beginning in the same place. So that sort of similarity of point of departure in relation to, say, um, you know, the nuances and complexities of the story Jenkins tells about masculinity is, uh, th this is a, a, a sameness and difference that I think helps put the two, uh, the two creators, right, a literary uh, work, you know, as well as cinema in the case of Native Son, and a pure cinematic work in the case of Moonlight. So, but what I wanted to, us to see from the Richard Wright pieces was Wright's identification, especially in the man who was almost a man short story, to see uh, his, his interrogation and identification of the crisis of black masculinity that starts with the process of emasculation. And that emasculation has a few different dimensions that we can see in each of the pieces of Richard Wright's that we considered. Certainly in Native Son, there's the emasculation that comes with the, the, the professional life of Bigger Thomas as a, basically a servant, um, and how he has to take on that role in order to not lift his family, his mother, siblings, girlfriend, himself, not to lift them out of poverty, but rather to simply sustain their life as impoverished. That sense of, of, of emasculation plays on and draws on a history of patriarchal conceptions of manhood. And we can be critical of that 
right? That, that in some ways Richard Wright is just reifying and repeating those ideas of, of masculinity on a patriarchal model. And perhaps he is normative in that sense, saying that, you know, what we need is to find paths for black men in, an, in, a, in a culture and, and social uh, milieu that is anti-black um, and has a particular kind of anti-blackness that targets black men. Perhaps he's simply trying to chart a path back to patriarchal notions of masculinity. And that certainly would fall for most people under uh, deep criticism. I think there's an alternative way or sort of parallel way of reading Richard Wright, which is to say he's neither uh, charting a path nor, um, nor advocating for a certain kind of masculinity, but instead describing right at the level of portrait or portraiture, trying to describe, to draw up a portrait of what the experience of emasculation is like and what re-masculation, right? The retrieval of a sense or assertion of a sense of masculinity might look like. In that way, if we read him in that diagnostic or portraiture uh, frame, I think that we can really understand the consequences of Richard Wright not thinking in creative ways, not thinking outside these normative structures that are part of an anti-black and patriarchal system. That is, he doesn't move beyond that system, even in his diagnosis. Now, in The Man Who Was Almost a Man, which is the most relevant story and the most immediate proximal to Moonlight for us in terms of conversation, it's the, the, the possession of a gun, something that was so important in Native Son as well at the beginning, that Bigger has a gun, is, makes him you know, a sort of leader sort of alpha male in his emasculated group, right? So his masculation, re-masculation in Native Son is also around the gun. But a man, the man who is almost a man, it's explicit. As we talked about, it's, it, the gun functions as a phallic symbol to really restore phallic power, patriarchal power, a sense of possession and power over one's own body that the gun symbolizes, but also that the gun brings into being. So it's not that the gun is simply a symbol, but it brings something into being. And what it brings into being is a sense of personhood and a sense of masculinity that turns on or, or, or structured by the capacity to take life. That is the capacity to kill, to harm, to injure is identified with the kind of masculinity that uh, is lost Right? That's part of subjugation, right? whether it's enslavement or sharecropping or simply uh, abandoned spaces like in Killer of Sheep and, and Native Sun and in Moonlight. In those abandoned spaces, right, there is no sense of power over oneself. Right? One is always subjugated, like literally set under right? the judgment of someone outside. As someone mentioned after class today, it's interesting to note that uh, Moonlight doesn't have any white characters, yet the, there is the persistent presence of white racism or anti-black racism right? in the abandoned landscape of the neighborhood and of the school. There's no sense of there being any concern with these spaces at all in a larger society, and that it's completely run by, in the case of Juan, 
right, run by drug dealers, in the case of the high school, by the sort of asshole, violent kids who harass Sharon and also Kevin uh, to a certain extent, or sort of vicariously. And so for me, what Moonlight does is take us back into that space of emasculation and remasculation that Richard Wright has and ask about what are alternatives, right? How do you chart an alternative path that doesn't simply understand the remasculation of, of black boys and black men in terms of the assertion of the power to take life or to injure, but instead, and just to give away the sort of conclusion that I draw from the film, to, to chart a path instead that identifies the meaning of masculation, right? Of masculinity, re-masculation in terms of touch, in terms of vulnerability, and in terms of beauty. That we see that, of course, when Juan tells a story after he gives a swimming lesson to Chiron uh, and his little boy uh, in the first third of the film. Um, and he tells that story about the the, the old woman telling him in Cuba, you know, uh, you know, it's a longer sort of discourse, but it's that that all all black boys are blue under moonlight, and what we see when Barry Jenkins gives us a cinematic representation of that, it's just this immense beauty. I mean, it's some of the most astonishingly gorgeous shots you will ever find in film, and so that way of thinking about like what this old woman's wisdom right or her proclamation or however you want to talk about it that's where we can begin to see like jenkins talking about there is an alternative that lurks there right touch that doesn't injure vulnerability that's not exposure to violence and beauty and i you know i asked in class i just said do we ever have a discourse that identifies men and masculinity and that's because of the nature of the class and nature of the material, black men and mas black masculinity, do we ever define that as beauty? Do we, ever, do we ever see it expressed or manifest like a man being a man as touch or an expression of vulnerability? And in some ways that's a ridiculous question to ask because the answer is of course no. The answer is of course no because paths to masculinity in, in a violent, patriarchal, anti-black society has to do with the capacity to be patriarchal and to enact violence. And if it's to act to be patriarchal, right, to establish, you know, rule over those around you, because it's not just, patriarchy is not just rule over women, it's the, it's the notion that the highest expression of patriarchy is the rule of one man over all, women and other men and children. And what that ethic, what that value system, what that normative aspect or normative structure of, uh, of masculinity or remasculation, as I keep calling it, right, assertion of one's masculinity after remasculation, that uh, what, what Moonlight tells us is how much harm that does to these other ways of being boys and other ways of being men that Chiron um, manifests, that he embodies, right? From the beginning, he's not violent. He shies away from the sort of violent games. 
you know, a little boy Kevin tells him, like, you can't let them pick on you and tackles him and wrestles with him playfully, but in order to teach him, you know, like, look, you need to physically assert your power over these bullies, over these other boys. And that continues all the way up through high school and into Sharon's uh, adulthood. So, but, but all along the way, what we get, and, and in all three actors who play Chiron, it's amazing how well they work with silence. That his silence is what tells us over and over about how much this vision of masculinity can't make meaning out of his life. That he has a different vision for his own life, a different desire to be, uh, a, a, a desire to be a different kind of person. And there's that really important part where um, where Juan says to Sharon, at some point you have to decide for yourself who you are. And that's the thing that Sharon can't do. And he can't do it because, it's not that he can't do it because um, he's afraid. It's not that he can't do it because he doesn't know it about himself. There is that point with the when he's a little boy and he, and he says, you know, um, you know, what is the F word, right? The homophobic slur and what is gay and how do I know? We get that glimpse into his sort of ignorance about self that comes with being a, a small child. But he also knows who he is in high school. He knows who he is as an adult. But there's no place for him to be that person. And so when Juan says you have to decide who you are, it's interesting to me that Sharon can't actually make that decision for himself because, and this gets back to so many of the conversations we've had, that, that question that you can ask of yourself, right? Who am I? What kind of person am I going to be? Is not simply an internal decision. It's not a decision that one makes and then just holds fast to especially in the, these cases of, of remasculation, of asserting and expressing one's masculinity, in those moments, there has to be a social relation, whether it's through violence in Richard Wright, in the assertion of, of the body as power over others, or in the case of Moonlight, touch and vulnerability, that Sharon misses his whole life Right, and he says right at the end of the film, in one of the most profound, like, ten seconds of acting you will ever find, when uh, when he twitches, and this is amazing to watch that scene right at the end of the film. He twitches when he's in Kevin's apartment as an adult, and he says, "You're the only man who's ever touched me." He says, "You're the only one." And at that moment, what Chiron is saying is. I can't be the man I want to be. I can't be a masculinity that is appropriate to the kind of person I am and the kind of person I want to be without a social relation. And I've never had that except for this small moment, this fleeting moment on the beach when we were teenagers. And that that scene is so intense. It has this shot um, where, where uh, I think it's Chiron and maybe even Kevin. I think the two of them have their, they, you know, Barry Jenkins has these, this close-up of their hands gripping the sand and the sand pouring over their hands in this blue moonlight, right? And that's the only moment that literally Chiron 
and maybe Kevin, but Sharon for sure, is grounded, right? He's gripping the ground, but it's slipping between his hands. It's not permanent. It's nothing to get a real handle or a hold on in order to structure the rest of his life. And that silence that Sharon had even as a child persists in his adulthood, I would say precisely because the, all the words he wants to speak, all the words that would speak his manhood, right, that would speak his masculinity into the world, have to do with a social relation that doesn't exist for him and in some very deep way can't exist for him until he finds Kevin again. And when he finds Kevin again, the film ends with two shots, right, that are so just phenomenal. It's, it's, a, it's in the dark, right, with a sort of golden sepia tone. And Sharon just has his head resting on Kevin's shoulder. It's one of the most loving shots I've ever seen on film. It is an, a physical embodiment of so much of what happened in the cafe, right? Where Kevin says, I heard this song and it made me think of you and he plays a love song, this beautiful old time love song. And then he says, let me cook for you. And when he says, let me cook for you, this song reminds me of you. There's this intimacy and vulnerability that Kevin is so bold to express and it disorients Sharon, he can't speak. And he speaks only of that intimacy and only of that vulnerability inside the apartment. When he, and then he rests his head on Kevin's shoulder. And that cuts immediately to that just gorgeous shot at the beach of the little boy, Sharon, at the, uh, uh, on, the, on the coastline, in the moonlight, in this gorgeous blue. And that moment, right, it's, that's where simply resting his head on Kevin's shoulder allows Chiron to access, you know, I think it has to be said this way, his inner child, but not his inner child as like this playful escapist thing, but that inner child as that first moment where he knew that being a man was going to be different for him, that it was going to be about being beautiful, trying to be beautiful, trying to find beauty, trying to find vulnerability, intimacy, and touch. All his touch has been violence, right? The touch of his mother, right, who rages at him. They don't show him getting hit, but the rage is its own kind of touch, right? The boys at school who physically terrorize him with violence. And he has a life without touch that isn't violence. And the moment he has that touch as an adult, that allows him to be intimate, that allows him to be that child who never got to be a man, we cut to the final scene. This boy on the beach, in the moonlight, blue and beautiful. And thinking about that, that final shot of that little boy on the beach, blue and beautiful, and putting that alongside Richard Wright's uh, articulation at the end, especially at the end of a man who, the man who was almost a man, his, his description and articulation of, of Dave Saunders' masculinity in relation to the gun, Right? I could kill old man Hawkins. I lay my head on Kevin's shoulder. Those two contrasted, I mean, contrast is not a strong enough word, right? Those two clashing visions of black masculinity are two visions 
that lead us into very different worlds, that lead us into very different social relations. And so for me, it's important to get them out there as this sort of social realism and, and intact patriarchal, violent, anti-black vision of masculinity in Richard Wright and put that alongside this other vision of masculinity and this other vision of flight from the world as we know it and assertion of self. As Juan says, at some point you have to decide who you are and you have to live it. And the idea that at some level Chiron knew all the time who he was but couldn't live it, he couldn't decide for it until the very end is what just makes that film so beautiful, right? Because it's it's this immense struggle of, you know, who knows, 25 years, right, to be who he is. But it's not just that Chiron lacks will, that he lacks assertiveness. It's that he lacks a social relation because we can't be who and what we are without that social relation. It's an existential relation. We exist in the world. We are worldly beings in relation to others. That's why Fanon talked about the zone of non-being, right? That white, the white gaze puts black bodies and black people in the zone of non-being. Barry Jenkins through Chiron is saying, you know, we end up in the zone of non-being when we don't have a plural notion of masculinity. Or I think maybe even further, if we don't reconceive the idea of masculinity on the model of touch, vulnerability, intimacy. And that different vision, right? What if black men define their masculinity in terms of being beautiful rather than having the capacity to take life and to physically dominate others? What other kind of world could we have? What other kinds of beings, what other kinds of creatures could we be if that was our conception of masculinity? It's an open question and I love that it asks that open question and in that way invites us to think with the film and to imagine entirely different, perhaps even inconceivable visions and versions of the world. <laughs>